We're starting in verse 9 of Colossians 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. It doesn't matter. Uh, few or many, we can come together and worship you. We can come together and fellowship with one another. We can come together and hear your word preached. God, what a privilege it is to be able to gather with the saints. We thank you that you are so gracious to us. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters across this nation and across this world as they worship you today, even now, um, that, that, that the church, the invisible church, would be united with a heart for the gospel, for spreading it, for going forth, uh, for being conformed to the image of your Son. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Belize. You would continue to be with them and bless them and cause them uh, to grow up um, into the head, which is your Son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you, God, that we are able um, to be ministers by your grace. We can be used by you um, to let people know about the hope that there is in Jesus. Lord, we pray you'd continue your work in us. We thank you for the finished work of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that you have a work that you are going to bring to completion in us. And we pray we would continue to look to you, God, daily for what we need, for our daily bread. And continue, Lord, uh, for us to walk faithfully before you. We thank you for your spirit who fills us, who gives us the fruit of the Spirit uh, to walk in your ways. We pray this for your glory. Amen. Okay, what happens when you walk into a church? Well, it depends on the church, right? And it depends on the person. And it depends on the people in the church. Uh, growing up, um, my parents were divorced when I was in second grade, and my dad um, took us to a church, and it was one of those churches where no one said a word going in, and no one said a word once you were in there, and no one said a word going out. It was very uh, somber and quiet the entire time. Um, and I'm not sure I ever met a single person that all those years. I mean, I, I probably shook some hands, but... My mom's church, on the other hand, um, by the time I started going there as a baby, I believe my family had already been there for uh, at least 21 years, a long time. Um, so by the time I had a real recollection, it had been almost like 30 years, and so our family was a fixture at that church. In fact, some of my extended family still goes to that church, so 68 years and counting. That's a long time. 
You make it 68 years here as a member, we'll get you a little pin, okay? <laughs> we'll even give you a grave spot, okay? Put you out by the air conditioners in the courtyard. Uh, no, seriously, though, my, my mom's church, though, had people talking from the moment you walked in. Very, uh, very friendly church. But different experiences at different churches. And listen, different churches have different cultures. Um, some of them can be good cultures. Some of them can be healthy cultures. Some of them cannot be so good cultures. Um, these things can change and look different. Our church has cultures. Some of them you might be aware of. Some of them you might not be aware of. I think we do a very good job of being friendly with people. I think we have a very generous church. Um, but here's the thing. All those differences uh, with churches, th- those, those can be differences as long as they're good differences. That, I mean, uh, that's fine. But what we don't want to change is the reason that we're coming together and the one we're gathering for. And that's our triune God. Um, that's the one that we all worship that never changes. Uh, and he is the one and true God. And what we're going to look at today um, is really what Christ has done for us. Um, and what Christ has done is absolute, it's never changing, it's complete, and it's finished. So yes, cultures in a church, they can change, but Christ's work will never change. It is a completed work that by the grace of God the Father, we're brought into it. Uh, last time we looked at being filled in Christ and how he brings us fullness, that's in verse 10 of Colossians 2. And again, the idea, just to reiterate, is because we are in Christ, like, we get everything. Everything that Christ gets is then applied to us. And we have a fullness in Christ alone. Listen, the answer to our discontentment is found in Christ. So we have a true satisfaction. Back in verse 10 of Colossians 2, we have been filled in him. Does, does God do a partial filling? No. No, it is a complete filling. Okay, when God fills, he fills completely. How can he do that? Because, verse 9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. So he has the fullness. If he's full, he can give us his fullness, and he does. That means true contentment is possible. True satisfaction is possible. And what we're going to continue to do over the next few weeks is look at the different things that we have in Christ. We're going to look at the different things that God has done for us in Christ. So the first one that we looked at um, in the last sermon was being filled. Today, sort of by introduction, um, we're going to look at, uh, in a roundabout sort of way, we're going to start getting into what it looks like uh, regarding uh, verse 11, the circumcision. It says, In him also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. We're also going to look at what it means to be buried with him, verse 12, raised with him, verse 12, and then made alive with him. Now there's three key words that the scriptures reiterate over and over again when they talk about what happened to Jesus. And we're going to see those. Hold your place in Colossians because we're coming back. But we're going to see that descriptor in 1 Corinthians 15. So turn there just briefly. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. 
It says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Okay, that, uh, those three key words that we're going to talk about and look at today are found right there in Corinthians verses 3 and 4. That he was died, buried, and resurrected. Over and over again, when you, you'll see this theme of Jesus' burial, death, and resurrection. And notice what he says, Paul is saying here, in verse 1 of Corinthians, he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So, I mean, he's going to be talking about gospel. He's going to be talking about gospel themes, which you received in which you stand. I'm by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So then he, then he rolls out what it is. What's the gospel? I delivered you as of first importance. This is, this is the top. First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for us, died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he's raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Okay. And then he goes on and talks about all the different people that he appears to, including Paul himself. Right? What's the gospel? Christ died for us. Then he was buried, and he was resurrected. And because of that, we can have forgiveness of sins. Because of that, we can be made right again with the Father. Because of that, our sins are wiped away. Because of that, the Holy Spirit comes and re regenerates our heart. Because of that, our old man is crucified with Christ. And on and on and on and on. That's of first importance. Amen? Something similar, Paul states, in Romans. Look at Romans 6. Romans 6, we're going to start in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So there you have the death and you have the burial. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Notice all these things are happening. They're happening to us in Christ. Look back again. We were buried, therefore, with him. He's buried, we're buried by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. So he's raised, we're raised. So this theme of the death, burial, and resurrection, you see it over. Now some verses in the New Testament, they'll focus on, on that first one. They'll focus on his death. Other verses will talk about his burial. Other verses will focus on the resurrection. But here's the thing. Um, usually the mention of one kind of encapsulates the idea of the other two. If you think about it, even when we're sharing the gospel with people, most of the times if we're focusing on something of those three, the death, burial, and resurrection, a lot of times we'll, just, we'll tell people, hey, Christ died for you, and you can be forgiven of your sins. And when we're, when we're saying that, we're also including really in that when, and he was buried and he was raised. But we might focus on, on that one particular thing. I do think it's helpful at times uh, to mention the resurrection, especially with unbelievers. Uh, but, but that's the theme that we see. The creeds themselves mention these three specific things. The Apostles' Creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. Okay? You get the died, buried, resurrected. The Nicene Creed. 
He was crucified. That's going to be the death. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scripture. So there's this motif, if you will, death, burial, resurrection. Why is the death aspect important? Well, because he actually died. Jesus actually died on the cross. The apostle John sees this as of first importance. He wants to make it crystal clear that Jesus actually died when he was on the cross. Look at John chapter 19. John 19, verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Now, <clears throat> John records what modern medicine didn't know for and, and, and realized for a long time. It's that that puncturing with the separation of the water and blood, without going into all the details, was indicative of death. And it's interesting that he, he mentions uh, there's this water and the blood, and what does he say? He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Now, he's testifying to everything there, and that Jesus died, but his point is, listen, Jesus was actually dead. He was dead. He didn't faint. Why did Jesus die? So that you could live. He died so that you could live. So why is this important that Jesus died? Well, so that we can live. Our sin requires death. What does Romans 6, 23 say? For the wages of sin is death. We sin, there has to be death. There has to be death. What does Jesus do? He dies in our place. Listen, everyone acknowledges that Jesus died. Everyone acknowledges, all, all religions and all faiths and even the vast majority of atheists will acknowledge there was a man, Jesus, he died. And Romans 3 tells us, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to re be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So Jesus is, is the sacrifice, he's the propitiation to appease God's wrath. God's wrath has to be poured out. It has to be poured out. When there's sin, God has to punish it. How does he punish it? It's by his wrath that he's punishing the sin. So how does he do that? Well, he's going to pour it out on someone in order for him to be righteous. Think of a judge in the courtroom. If there's been a, a crime committed, the criminal has to pay. It would be unjust for the judge to let the criminal go. So the wrath has to be poured out. What does Jesus do? He covenants with the Father from eternity past to what? To receive the punishment, to take the wrath. So yes, when Jesus is on the cross, there is a physical aspect of the pain. But there's also, he's, he's bearing the wrath of God, which was much more than physical. Bearing the wrath, and, and brothers and sisters, that wrath was the wrath that you deserved, and you deserved, and you deserved, and I deserved. 
Yet Jesus bore it for us. That's why the death is important. Why is the burial aspect important? I mean, think about that. Both the major, the two, you know, like most major creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, they both mention that burial. Why is that so important? Even, even what we read in, in 1 Corinthians and Romans, why is this burial aspect? Well, one, it shows he really is dead. I mean, he could have just, you know, popped right off the cross minutes after he died. He could have done that. Or right as soon as they took him down. But, but what do you do when someone dies? I mean, you bury him. You bury him. You, you know, you don't, you don't bury people that are alive. Not normally. So what do you do when someone dies? You bury them. Three days in a tomb. Three days in a tomb, he's dead. The Heidelberg Catechism say, um, asks, why was he buried? The answer, his burial testified that he had really died. And everyone acknowledges he was buried, all, all faiths, all religions. The other <clears throat> reason uh, the burial emphasizes it fulfills Scripture. Look at Isaiah 53. I'm going to guess some of you haven't heard this before. Isaiah 53 is all a prophecy about Jesus. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Now whose tomb was he, he laid in? Joseph of Arimathea, right? He was a wealthy man. It, we're being told hundreds and hundreds of years ahead of time where his grave's going to be. Also, there's a finality to it. You know, it's unfortunate at grave sites that we don't actually get to see the coffin go into the ground. It, I actually think it's very unfortunate. It's, um, it's because there's... there's there's just not quite the finality that there could be. And there's a reason when they show it in movies, right? The coffin's already in there, and then they usually start putting the dirt on it. Um, but we don't get to see the coffin go in the gr ground and, and buried in dirt. But even so, when we leave the casket, if you've ever you know, gone to the graveside, um, you know, usually the closer family and friends do that. When you leave the casket at the cemetery and drive away, there's finality to it. That person's dead, they're in the coffin, they're not coming back. Not in this life. There's also theological significance. As we read in Romans, we're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So there's this idea of the burial, and what does the burial represent in the Christian life? Is that, that the old man has been, has been buried. So I, I remember 
uh, one of my friends after I first got saved saying, I want, I want the old Mike back. And I was like, well, he's dead. I mean, he was buried, right? He's buried. So the old person is gone. And so really, and even here's a little application when you think about it, like when we go back to sin, once we've been joined to Christ, it's literally like digging up a dead body. It doesn't make sense. You've been buried with Christ, but you start sinning, and it's like you're trying to dig up, dig up your old self who's been put, put to death. Additionally, you know, quite a few Old Testament texts speak of the, of the grave um, with dread. When David's um, singing his song of deliverance from Saul, he says, the cords of the grave coiled around me. The, co- the cords of the gra- grave coiled around me. And Job, when he's talking about it, says he calls it the land of gloom and deep shadow. One theologian said Jesus entered, or excuse me, Jesus endured not only pain and suffering and the curse of death, but even the terror of the grave, so that he could save his people from this forever. We have no reason to fear the grave. Amen? Amen? Now, why is the resurrection aspect important? Well, it shows his power over the grave. It shows that death couldn't hold him down. It validates Jesus' claim. What did he say? Destroy this temple. And what did he say? I'll raise it again. I'll raise it again. It validates the claims that Jesus made of who he was. He was the the Son of God. He was the promised Messiah. It shows the Old Testament prophecies about him were true. So this theme is present in the Colossians passage. Look back at the Colossians passage. In verse 12, it says, having been buried with him in baptism. So there we have the burial. In which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. We have the resurrection. But we also have the death, which we'll, we'll look at a little bit more in depth next week. It's there. But if, if you don't know what you're looking at, it can kind of be hidden. But we, say, we have the same motif of the death, burial, and resurrection in this passage. Now, some of you know that I do some power washing on the side. And so this past week, um, my second oldest son, Job, and I were power washing uh, an apartment complex. And so we had been working, and um, he was on, working on one building, I was working on another building, and um, because we're far enough apart, usually if we, if we need to communicate, we just text one another. And so I get a text from him. It says, the police might come. <laughs> Quickly followed up by a second text, not because of us. <laughs> as soon as I read both those texts, I could hear the siren of the police in the distance coming. So I'm like, oh, great. I'm like, well, we got a long day ahead of us. 
um, even if the police aren't coming. So uh, I'm, we're just going to keep watching. So the police show up, and they're trying to gain entrance into one of the uh, tenants, um, you know, into their home, basically. And so the tenant finally opens up uh, their home and is, is there for a while. And um, the next thing you know, the, the suspect, we'll just call him the suspect, is darting out of his home, and he's headed straight towards Job. So what does Job do? You know, he's over there, power washing, and this guy is running at him like full speed. And this guy is fast. And so <laughs> Job's there power washing. Job drops his gun, and he starts sliding to catch this guy. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take him down. So that, which totally catches the suspect off guard, Right? I mean, you're not expecting that to happen. So then the guy starts to try to alter course. And then so then Job's like going after him, um, gets just a piece of him. You know, the guy kind of does like this U-turn. The police the entire time are just watching this like go on. <laughs> They're just standing there. So finally they, they like do it. You know, he, he, he does a U-turn. And so then he's kind of not really headed back towards the police, but he's getting away from Job. And he's you know, kind of heading in a, in a third direction. So then finally the police... Uh, give chase to this. I didn't know any of this was going on because I was at a different building. <clears throat> and so I'm, I'm just like watching and all of a sudden like this guy just comes tearing past me like 15 feet. I'm just like, what is going on? And then two seconds later, the police come. And then like, you know, five seconds later, like Job comes. <clears throat> and so I'm like, what in the world? I was kind of, Job, Job actually ended up coming, I was kind of, I thought it was kind of funny, because he knew I was a runner, and he's like, I bet my dad's going to see this guy running, and he's going to take off and catch him, <laughs> so Job wanted to see if I was going to catch the guy, I didn't have any of that other info, so all I knew was the guy was running past me, and the police were chasing after him, so I uh, decided to, to, to stay away. Um, so it was an interesting day. Um, many other things interesting happened that day. We got yelled at by people, um, all sorts of different questions, which I figured with tenants and different things, we might have some interesting experiences. Um, and, you know, and when you talk about like making memories with your children, it, it doesn't usually involve the police. Okay. Um, here's the thing. I've, I've thought a lot about that situation. We're kind of like that suspect. Because we'll do anything not to deal with issues in our life at times. And we'll do anything not to deal with sin. So we'll run this way and that way and do whatever we can to avoid getting caught. Does running away make the problem go away? No. We might think it makes the problem go away. Uh, he ended up, the suspect ended up hopping a, 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 a fence and went into this, like, wooded area. I mean, the, the man hiding out in the woods, I mean, he still had a problem. And he was still a suspect. I don't know if he committed a crime or not, but he was a suspect that the police wanted to talk to. And guess what? He's going to have to face those consequences at some point 
uh, whatever occurred, he's going to have to face, uh, in this scenario, the police and answer whatever questions they might have. And we talked a little bit about it the other week, about, like, as believers, are we going to be anthropocentric or are we going to be Christopocentric? Meaning, anthropocentric is man-centered, anthropos. Are we going to be man-centered in our approach to walking with the Lord and our relationship with him? Because anthropocentric is very selfish, and it's very me-focused. And it's about, like, what's best for me, and, and how can I get the most out of this situation, and how does this bless me or benefit me? That, it's very man-centered. And people even read their Bibles like that. Very man-centered. Or we can be Christocentric and theocentric, Christ-centered and God-centered, where he's first and foremost. And the question isn't, like, what's best for me? It's, like, what's best for Christ? What's best for his kingdom? What furthers his kingdom? And Guess what, brothers and sisters, if that's going to be our approach, then we will make different decisions than if we have an anthropocentric approach, a man-centered approach. Because we will make decisions with Christ in mind first. Everything will be revolving around him. Each of our homes doesn't matter if we're a home of one or a home of ten. Each of our homes has to be Christocentric. It has to have Christ at the center. And everything else revolves around him. That's the message, parents, that our kids need to see. They need to hear it. They need to see it. Things are centered and adjusted so that we make sure Christ is always at the center. Guess what some of us need to do? Is we need to, we need to take, <clears throat> take inventory, so to speak, and if Christ has, is not the center, he's gotten a little off, we need to do whatever it takes to get him back to the center. He needs to be at the center of what we're doing. Our focus, what we're going to find out as we keep reading in Colossians, we're supposed to what? Set our heart on things above. Why? Because that's where Jesus is. He's seated on the throne. We look towards heaven. What do we see? None other than Jesus himself. So, and, and so part of the application there is like, get our eyes off ourselves. Get our eyes off ourselves looking at what, what, what's best for us and what do we want. No, what does Christ want for us? What would Christ have us to do? How can we walk in a way that is glorifying and pleasing to him? Listen, Jesus is the great physician. True? Right? He's the great physician. And what do physicians do? What do they do? They heal, right? They're supposed to. And how do they do that? Cleaning, bandaging, but also cutting. I mean, sometimes the, the healing, there's going to be pain involved. How many of you remember when you're younger, you're sitting there either at the table or maybe on your mom's lap, you know, when you're younger and she's got like that spoon of medicine or maybe a little cup? I, I just have this vivid image of me as a kid having to take that medicine and sitting there for felt like hours and hours and hours. Okay. It was probably like five minutes. <clears throat> but you, you got to take the medicine. Why? It's going to help you get better. Well, you, you need to take the medicine of God. Well, let me just say, whatever engineers they hired to make children's medicine taste good, like those people need to be fired, okay? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it made Socrates' hemlock look delicious, okay? It's just bad stuff. <clears throat> but what does Jesus say? The scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, this is in Mark 2, said to his disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now, by God's grace, like we have the righteousness of Christ. But we need to remember it's the righteousness of Christ. It is not our righteousness. Not at all. And so, if we have a self-righteousness, we are right back to that anthropomorphic center. We're doing anthropocentric work for Christ. It's going to all be for naught. It's got to be a Christ-centered approach where he's at the center. And, and he's the great physician. So whatever medicine he's wanting us to take, guess what? It's going to do its work. Whatever he wants to do, you have to get up on that surgery table I mean, how many of you have had to have like what you would consider a somewhat major sur- surgery? All right, shoulder, knee, whatever. I mean, <clears throat> how long does that recovery take? M- months, especially if you get old, all right? <laughs> I mean, I had my uh, shoulder, and I didn't even have the rotator cuff. It, it was just, I just had some tears in, in, in my shoulder, and... I'm not kidding you, it took, before I felt like it was like 99%, it took like nine months. But that first month, like, was brutal. You know, you just turn it the wrong way, and it was like someone just stabbed you in the arm with a knife. It was excruciating. Now, but was the doctor intending to do me harm? No. He was intending to do me good. And did did good come of it? Yes. Did it take a while? Yes. Was it painful? A hundred percent. Well, listen, we have a great physician, and sometimes we just think that Jesus is just going to like uh, wave his little magic wand over us, and everything's going to be fine. And sometimes, by God's grace, he actually does do that. He does that uh, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. He can do that. But other times, and the way th- that the Spirit seems to work, is it's, it, it's a very slow, painful process. Why? Because he wants to make sure, in part, he wants to make sure we know who's doing what. And it's God doing the work for us. That it's all of him and none of us. And that, that's painful. But some of us have been neglecting surgery for quite a while. We've been neglecting. God wants to do some operating. He wants to cut thing, some things out. He wants us to deal with some certain issues. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's pride. It could be a host of things, but God wants to cut that out of your life. It's not going to be pleasant, but it is worth it. Why? Because our heart, back to being Christ-centered, is to be conformed to the image of his son. And so whatever, whatever, whatever is holding you back, whatever that particular thing might be, maybe the Lord's brought something to your mind, maybe you already knew it. Like, you have to be willing to let the great physician operate on you. You have to be willing to let him cut on you. And yeah, it's not pleasant or fun. Now, when you have the surgery, whether it's your arm or soldier, knee, whatever, like, what happens afterwards? Like, people, you know, bring you meals and they help out and, you know. Well, guess what? If you're going through a tough time spiritually, God's doing a work in your life, you need brothers and sisters to come around you and support you. You need them to bring you the meals, so to speak. You need them to be there with you. The, the Christian life is not walked in isolation. Even if you just think of like 
the letters that we have, who were they written to? Most of them were written to churches, and all of them were actually written in a church context. So even if it was an individual, it was still supposed to be read in the church. Well, guess what? Think if you weren't a part of the church back then, and you're calling yourself a believer, but you're not going to church anywhere. You would have missed out a whole lot. No scriptures. You never would have heard it. We need one another. We need the body of Christ. And oftentimes, uh, if we see our brother and sister hurting it, they might be going through surgery. And guess what? You know, when you're coming out of the surgery, you're usually not in your right mind. And you're usually in pain. And you're usually maybe a little cranky. Guess what? If God sometimes is working in people, we just need to give them some grace, knowing that the Lord's working in their life. We need to give them some grace. Yeah, because maybe they're off. Maybe they're having a bad day. And, and so we continue to love them and to come alongside them, even in the midst of... Of their, of their sin and suffering. Why? Because people come alongside you in the midst of your sin and suffering. Are you hearing me? So Christ does a work. Listen, let him continue to do his work. Running from it doesn't help. Some of you, you know you have issues and you can, you can sweep them under the rug, you can put them on the back burner for as long as you want. It does not make them go away doesn't make them go away. You got to deal with them. And listen, God is very gracious. He's very, very gracious. We have a very, very gracious and loving Heavenly Father. And he, he knows how to wield the scalpel perfectly. He knows where to cut, and he knows where not to cut. He knows how deep to cut. He knows how long to cut. And we have to let them cut. You don't see doctors running around forcing people to have surgeries. We have to come willingly and let him do his surgery on us. It is a beautiful thing once you've made it through. You talk to people who've had all sorts of different issues they've had to work through, different challenges they've had to go through, different trauma they've had to work through, and they come out on the other side, And what do they do? They're singing God's praises. They can testify to the goodness of God in their life. And they're more like Christ. And Christ is honored and glorified. So don't run from the scalpel. Yes, it hurts. It's the only way to become formed to the image of God's Son. It's the only way to deal with the issues in our life. It's the only way to deal with sin. It has to be cut out. Be willing to let God do his work on you. Let's pray. Lord, I ask now that you would do your work in each person's heart here.
And Father, give, give us a heart to forsake sin, to see it as disgusting and vile. Lord, give us a heart to want to forsake our sin, whatever it might be. And Father, I pray for people that, that know they have issues they need to deal with. Lord, break those chains. Cut out that sin. Minister to the hurt. Your word says you, you bind up the brokenhearted. Or minister your healing salve onto their soul. Take out whatever is not of you. We thank you for the finished work of your son, Jesus. We thank you that we're reconciled to you, Father, and that we are made right with you. And we do ask, Lord, you would continue your work in us for your glory. Amen.